Good morning. Um, we have been uh, journeying through uh, the book or the gospel account of John. And <clears throat> this morning we are in John chapter 18. So if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and flip to John chapter 18. Put your finger there and we will return there in just a moment. To summarize, we have just taken the probably the past five or six weeks to journey through John chapter 18. So with John chapter 18, what we see is what's often called the high priestly prayer, which is uh, we get kind of an insight to uh, Jesus's relationship with the Father. So we see him praying uh, not only for his disciples or his current disciples, but he prays for future followers and future disciples that will come after them. And then he ends in chapter 17 really talking about unity, which we've unpacked over the past three weeks. Um, and it's this idea that his followers and all their diversity, how they are unified together with each other in his name is going to be kind of the beacon. It's going to be the, uh, the earmark of evidence that he has risen from the dead, that a new kingdom is available. It's going to be our unity. So we've unpacked that over the past uh, three weeks. And now this morning, we turn to John chapter 18, which comes at the culmination of that prayer, that high priestly prayer. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, turn to John chapter 18 this morning, and we will pick up in verse 1, and we will read through verse 27. When he, when Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I'm him. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shouldn't I drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, and they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if the one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known in the, to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not uh, one of his disciples, are you? The girl said to Peter at the door. He replied, no, I'm not. 
It was cold out, and the servants and the officials, they were standing around a fire that was made to keep them warm. Peter also came and stood with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I've spoken openly, Jesus said. I've always taught in the synagogues, where I taught in the temples, any place where all the Jews gather together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Are those, ask those who heard me. Surely they can tell you what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way that you answer the high priest, he commanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, tell me what it was that I said that was wrong. But if I spoke the truth, then why'd you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood, warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of those disciples, are you? He denied it. No, no, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Malchus, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? This guy's thinking, didn't you cut off my cousin's ear? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Let's pray and then we'll get into the teaching. Lord Jesus, um, God, we are... uh, We are in awe when we see you uh, in the scriptures, when we hear everything that you have to say between you and your Father and for us, your followers, and then just to see you uh, put your love on display. Uh, We are in awe of who you are, so we pray that you would come, uh, that your presence would be here, that you would give us understanding, uh, that you ultimately would make us more like yourself. Amen. So I think it's important first and foremost to kind of get an idea real briefly about just the scriptures as a whole, the Bible, the collection of these stories, right? So really, if we look at the Bible, it's a collection of case studies. If we look at the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, it's case study after case study after case study of life with God, either life with him and living into the way that he intended, living in a communal relationship with him or it's examples and case studies of uh, where it didn't go so well. And ultimately with Jesus, Jesus is this ultimate case study of who is God, what, what is he like, right? Is, if you have seen me, he says, you've seen the Father, right? So we know, we know what the Father is like because of really the case study that is Jesus' life. And that carries on with the early church. So I think first and foremost, because what we're going to dive into today here in chapter 18 is this idea of case study, because we have two case studies with Peter and with Jesus. So first off, um, what is a case study? So if we're thinking about a case study from a research lens, um, there should be a slide. Uh, oftentimes you'll see something like this, which is a hierarchy of evidence. And typically at the top is going to be your systematic reviews and meta-analyses, what researchers would say, like, that's like grade A, that's the top of the pyramid. Um, That's when things, variables can be controlled. You can minimize any sort of um, conflict or uh, anything that might uh, pollute or dilute the evidence. But as you work your way down, and again, this is a hierarchy, so a researcher would say, well, we're kind of dropping down in value of where we can definitively say, evidence stems from, but you can kind of see case series and case reports are down low. Now the question is, 
if this is the hierarchy, if this is a researcher's lens, then what's the value in a case study, right? What, why do we care about them? Why are they even like put forth? And really where the value comes in is for the, uh, not the researcher or the academician, but it's going to be for the clinician. It's going to be for the person, uh, the doctor, the one who's in uh, the, the clinic, the hospital, day in and day out. They're the boots on the ground. And so really what a case report does is what it should do is it should synthesize all the best available evidence, everything above in the triangle, and it should be able to be like, hey, here's a real world example. Like taking all this information, like here's a real world example, here's how this played out. And it's usually the people who are kind of the boots on the ground who go like, oh, that was super helpful to me because either I've seen a patient like that, or oh, that was like my experience, or oh, now that I get a little bit of a taste, it's gonna be helpful for me to see it when it comes in front of me. So when we think about the Bible, really we can see, we look at the Bible and we, we go, okay, we, we maybe conceptually if we think about the Mosaic Law or we think about uh, the, the Beatitudes, we, we can, there are these things that are within the epistles, right? These, these uh, either rules or regulations or instructions, and we go, okay, like, well, what does that look like? And we can go, oh, like, let's look at the life of David. Let's look at the life of Jesus. Like, let's see these examples. And really, it, it becomes very intuitive with us as human beings because we're storied creatures, right? Stories make sense to us. They stick with us. Jesus, as he was teaching, he was always teaching in story format, right? Because it's how, it's how we can process things, how we can really digest things. So what I want to do this morning and what I'd propose is that here in John chapter 18, we have two case studies that we can learn from. We can look at the life of Peter and how he reacts in the situation, and we can look at Jesus and how he reacts in the situation. So um, let's start by examining Peter, okay? So um, first and foremost, I just want to say that I love Peter. I feel like he's, uh, he's always doing and saying exactly what we'd expect. Like we look at Peter and we're just like, ah, like I feel you, Pete. Like that's what I would have done. Or like that's what I would have said. Um, he's relatable. We can sympathize with him. Um, and whether that's his early life, um, kind of before he meets Jesus, as he's walking with Jesus, or even like if we look ahead to the book of Acts, we can kind of see Peter kind of stuck in this like, uh, like I know the new way, but I'm still like, I'm, I'm stuck in my cultural tendencies, et cetera, et cetera. So we can, I think Peter's, Peter's a good case study to look at because we can say like, like I get him. So, but with that being said, when Peter reacts, what he says, it's very expected. It's very ordinary. So when we look at Peter, we look at, hey, that, in general, that's how the world operates, right? So pretty typical. Peter reacts out of fear, right? That's his motive. That's his drive, especially in this case here. And he acts out of self-preservation, right? So that's, and that's, again, we look at that and we go, that's pretty ordinary. Like if I just step back and I just look at the world around Peter, I look at the world around us, it's like, that's typically pe people's mode of functioning. Really, if we want to think about the model that Peter operates out of, he operates out of this finite model. So if we think about perspective and lens, kind of Pete, Peter operates here, 
right? He operates in this finite model where scarcity reigns, where it's where it really comes down to, hey, can I promote myself? What's my default? It's to take and it's to grab and it's to reach and it's to uh, protect my self-interest and to protect myself at all costs, okay? So that's Peter's, that's Peter's model that he lives into, right? Is this, it's this finite model. And if we step back and look at chapter 18 again, and we look at Jesus instead of Peter, we see a different way of, a different way of operating. We, say it, we see a different way of looking at the world. And it's not just in chapter 18, Okay, if we look back over the entire Gospel of John, let's just take it at that. Jesus has been doing nothing that has been accepted, or excuse me, that has been expected or ordinary in his contemporaries' eyes. So just a few, just a few examples of that. His kingdom that he comes talking about, right? It's available, and he says that, but it's not available to the people that we expected that it was going to be available to. The manifestation of his kingdom or the signs we've been talking about uh, within John, there are these two themes. There's his glory and there are his signs, his signs of his kingdom. His signs are not what we would have thought, and they're especially not for who we would have thought, right? A prostitute, a leper, a cripple, and then a Samaritan, like the Jews are just like, what? You know, like I'm thinking about the Messiah and how the manifestations of his kingdom are going to be. And this is not fitting my paradigm, right? So he's constantly doing what uh, we wouldn't expect as we read the text, uh, as we just have the backdrop in the context of typical human experience, but also to his contemporaries. They're, they're going, this is not what we would anticipate from the Messiah. His power is not what we'd anticipate, right? So if we, even if we just look at chapter 18 here, we're thinking about, okay, who's Who's in a position of power and how are they operating? Well, we can look at the high council, right? And we can see these, um, we can see examples of soft and hard power. So hard power, we see the coming with the torches and the weapons, et cetera. Uh, we can see the guard standing guide and standing by and hitting Jesus in the face, right? This very much like, hey, this is how we exert our power. Or soft power, we can see the Jewish people and how they're them with the Romans are leveraging political advantages in order to get what they want in order to move their agenda forward. Jesus steps in with his kingdom, and he doesn't abide by that at all. His power is uh, not what we'd anticipate. It's, it's fueled and it's driven by love. And it's something that stands in stark contrast to the, the power structures around him. And if we can think back, we can even think of uh, like John the baptizer. He comes to Jesus. And or his disciples come to Jesus and they go like, look, are you it? Or should, should we be expecting someone else? So even for someone who is Jesus's cousin, he's like, you're doing stuff that I'm like, I'm not expecting. That's not what I anticipated. So it's not that Jesus is just acting this way in John chapter 18, but he's been doing this for his entire ministry. He's been doing what's unexpected. Within Jesus's response from the time of the garden, all the time, all throughout his time before the council, and we'll read later on in chapter 18 next week, he comes before Pilate. But even as he goes through, whether he's acted upon, we continue to see him doing things that are what we would call otherworldly. So a few examples. He acts secure. 
He acts secure in his life. He acts secure in his well-being. He is calm. He is non-anxious. He is non-retaliatory. He doesn't fight. He submits. And overall, he acts, he acts confident, like he knows something that others don't. Like compared to the people around him, he acts like he's in tune with something that they're not in tune with. Because they look at the situation that's unfolding around them, and just like Peter, the response is what we'd expect, right? It's fear. How can we, how can we preserve ourselves in this moment? How can we continue to pr- promote the kingdom of the Messiah? And Jesus submits. He acts confident like he knows something completely different. And the truth is that despite everything that's going on around Jesus, he lives in a completely different reality. Everyone else is operating in a certain reality, and Jesus is operating in a completely different reality. He knows that he is living in his father's world, right? So he knows that um, his father's world and the one that he created, the kingdom that he is a part of, he knows that contrasted to Peter's in the world, which is a very finite model, right? Jesus's is an infinite model. It's an eternal model where he operates from scarcity doesn't reign, but abundance reigns, right? So fear is not the motivation. Love is the motivation, right? And ultimately, this comes from a very firm understanding that like what Jesus tells us later and what the apostles tell us later, his kingdom can't be shaken. And Jesus knows this. He's fully aware of this, despite the fact that others around him are not. If we think back even to the Last Supper, right, it, we, get a little, uh, we get a little insight to this. It says, Jesus, he knew who he was, he knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going. So that's, that's the reality that Jesus operates in. And in that context of the Last Supper, it says, he knew all these things, so he took off his robe, he got on the floor, and he started washing his disciples' feet, right? He started to serve. He started to give himself because he knew, he knew his security in all these different ways. He knew that he was secure in the Father's love, and he knew, as Paul later tells us, that nothing could separate him, right? So that's, that's the mode that he operates in, and it's in stark contrast to how Peter responded in the situation, right? Peter responded like we would anticipate. So the question this morning that I want to pose to us is, can our lives look like Jesus, right? Can our lives look like a life unexpected or a life extraordinary, right? Can we, um, in a similar context or in a similar way, can we look like Jesus instead of Peter? Because everything in us is like, like my default is to, is to look like Peter, right? It's how, it's how the world around us looks. So first off, I want to say that, yes, it can. That's, that's kind of the easy, quick answer. It can, but in fact, it's exactly what Jesus offer, he offers to us. He invites us into. It's exactly the abundant life that he offers us into. And uh, Paul gives us different language for this in Romans chapter 5. So I just want to highlight that passage real quick because I think it gives us uh, different words to exactly um, the life, the new life that Jesus offers us to that is going to look like him. Paul says this, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, so Adam, he's talking about Adam here, 
how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of, provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So it's this, it's this dichotomy that we're talking about where Jesus is pulling us from the ordinary, the typical, how Peter's responding in the situation, what seems just like daily life, where death reigns and he is inviting us into where he lives, where we can reign in life. So more on that in a bit. So yes is the easy question. Yes, we can operate in a way that looks like Jesus as contrasted to what Peter looks like in this passage. But the follow-up question is how? Because as we come backwards, we think, well, surely Peter trusted Jesus, right? Surely Peter believed in who Jesus said he was. Yet he still responds in the way that, um, that Jesus does not, right? Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew he was trustworthy, and he knew the Father was trustworthy, and he responded in a certain way. Peter had made declarations earlier in the Gospel of John, yet Peter does not act or respond like Jesus. So how do we, those who propose a trust in Jesus, who believe in his uh, declaration of who he says and what he has done, how do we, just like Jesus, live like there's a new way to be human? And that's what we'll, um, that's what we'll move into this morning and that'll be food for thought for us this morning. So first of all, I think we need to remember, before we even talk about, uh, there are kind of three patterns that I think we see in Jesus' life that we can step into and emulate. Um, but first and foremost, I think it's important to remember that we are able to live like Jesus and respond like Jesus in this way because we have his indwelling spirit, right? So the scriptures tell us that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it now lives in us. So we are able to, right? We are, as Paul says, like we are able to live with all of his energies that work in us, right? His energy, his spirit is alive in us. So first off, we are able to. But secondly, and these are the three patterns that I want to highlight, we can look at the life of Jesus and see these three things, and these are just three things that are... Um, demonstrated here in chapter 18, but really are seen kind of throughout, throughout the Gospels. And they are Jesus's attention and awareness, right? We'll get on to that more in a second. It, he demonstrated that um, this new life, this new way to be human, is a life that's given first to God, and then it's a life that's given to others, okay? So let's unpack each of those uh, right now. First, attention and awareness. Jesus was constantly orienting his attention towards the Father. And in turn, because of that, he was very aware of that kingdom, right? The kingdom that we talked about. He was very aware of his Father's kingdom, that where, that where he was at was a God-saturated world, and that he was secure in it, right? So de despite what was around him, he was tuned into a truer reality, right? He was tuned into one that was unseen. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
We fix our eyes, not, what's on, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So here's Paul coming back and really giving us language again for what we see in the ways that Jesus is operating. He is living in a way that his eyes are fixated on what is unseen, not what is seen. And then as we move to uh, points two and three, point two is uh, a life that is given first to God. And really, we get this framework from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll just read, uh, this is specifically verse 5, I believe. But uh, So Paul is talking about the Macedonian church. And this Macedonian church, he's talking to the Corinthians about their generosity. He's talking to them how they gave out of their poverty, how they gave out of what they didn't have. And he goes on to say this. He goes, they exceeded our expectations. And he gives us this little framework that I think uh, we're going to unpack a little bit here this morning. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. And then, by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. So they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then they gave themselves to us. And this is what we see with Jesus. So secondly, after attention and awareness, we see what Jesus modeled, these patterns, these habits, is a life that is given first to God. And really this makes sense if we just look at chapter 18. What was Jesus doing right before the detachment of soldiers came? So it says he was in the garden, and it's not spelled out in John's gospel account, but in other gospel accounts that we have, we know what Jesus was doing in the garden, right? He was, he was fully surrendering to the Father, right? He was weeping. He was, he was in agony, it said, because he knew, right? And that's what we read in chapter 18. Jesus says, or the scriptures say, he knew essentially what was right around the corner. And even though it's not spelled out here in John, he was fully giving himself to the Father. He was fully surrendering to the Father. In 2 Chronicles uh, 16.9, it says this, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The life that first gives itself to God is the one that stands up that, and says, Lord, look no further, here I am, right? As the eyes of the Lord are going throughout the earth, looking for someone whose heart is holy is, this heart stands up and says, here I am, look no further. It's, it's a life that's committed to doing holy and fully his will. And the last, uh, the last pattern here is a life given then to others. And really, if we think about it, this is pretty intuitive, and it kind of comes from the previous two, right? It starts with awareness of this new reality. It then is reflected as a life given to God. And then the natural next step is a life that's given to others. And, and Jesus demonstrates this model for us. He gives himself to the Father. He fully surrenders himself, and then he gives his life away for us all, okay? In the language of Philippians chapter 2, he empties himself. And really, this is a model that we see all throughout Scripture and saw way back in John chapter 3 when it says, for God so loved the world, he gave, right? This is his, this is his natural response. And Jesus, as he is parked in our human affairs, right? 
He's fully aware of the Father and his kingdom. He gives himself there first, and the natural outflow is to give his life for us all, to give his life for the many. And really, this is a, if we think about it, this is a rhythm that's seen in many, in, in a couple different places at least, that Jesus verbalized to us. So one of them is the Lord's Prayer. If we go through the Lord's Prayer and think about our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and then it continues on. The rhythm and the pattern is the same. The first one is awareness. The idea of our Father in the heavens is not uh, kind of, as I think about the King James rendition of our Father who art in heaven, it, it gives you this idea of like he's in this faraway place, but instead it's this our Father in the heavens. And in the heavens gives you this idea of the Father's nearness, right? So the heavens um, can be translated to our Father in the air, in the air around us. So we can think and say, well, where's, where's the air around us? It's, it's everywhere, right? And then how close is the air around us? It's so, like, we can't even, like, kind of put words to or describe how close the air is. It's touching our skin. It's in us. So it's this awareness of a God-saturated world. And next, in the Lord's Prayer, he moves on to your kingdom come, your will be done. It's this idea of submission, right? And then the rest of the prayer moves into relations with other people, right? Forgive us as we forgive others. It's a similar pattern that we see in uh, what's often called Jesus's creed, which he takes the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus adds on and love your neighbor as yourself. A life given first to God and then a life given to others. So we see this pattern not only played out in Jesus's life, but he's been talking about it a lot as well. So in summary, if we can kind of uh, take the things conceptually we've talked about and try to put like a neat bow on it, the life that's unexpected, that's atypical, that's extraordinary, that looks like Jesus, is the life that's given away, right? Simply put, it's the life that's given away. We start with an ever-increasing awareness of this new kingdom reality. So the truths of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, which will come up on the screen here in a second, these things are always, these things are always on the brain. They're always on our minds. This is the awareness we're talking about. He chose us in him, and he predestined us for adoption. This is in accordance with his pleasure and will. And in him we are redeemed, in accordance with his grace that he lavished on us. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms with the king. Naturally then, with an awareness of this truth, with an always abiding and ever-present awareness of, oh, this is, our, this is our security, this is our reality, this is our identity. Naturally, we are then given fully to God. We are obedient and we are yielded and we find him completely trustworthy. Then we, get, we generously give ourselves to others. We give our labor, we give our influence, we give our finance, we give our expertise, our time, we give our ear, our home, 
and on and on it goes. And in doing so, we realize or we become what Jesus predicted we would be. We become salt, right? Salt that flavors a flavorless world. We become light, like a city set up on a hill that every eye is drawn to. And like a moth to a flame, every life is drawn to, right? That's, that's what Jesus promised and he predicted would be true of his followers who follow in his ways. And uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the stories that kind of, this, this idea of being drawn to and really operating in this, in this life that's filled with the Spirit is, uh, just recently Carrie was sharing with me a story about, but many of you know uh, Brian Olson or Bo, but... Brian is in uh, Nepal right now. And so one of the stories that he was relaying on to Carrie and his family was in Nepal. So uh, their country, the, the, the dominant religion is Hinduism. And so naturally there are temples that are uh, throughout the country in the metropolitan areas. And these temples, just like what kind of we, we think about, there are what there are people that work there full time who would be operating essentially like a priesthood, right? So they're interceding, they're accepting sacrifices on behalf of the people given to the gods. So um, what Bo was describing is these priests are, they're very welcome and open to uh, the spiritual realm. Now, they're open to uh, a very much the, the demonic side of the spiritual realm, but they they live in that world. They don't live like a lot of us, especially in the West, where it's like post-enlightenment, like the, the idea of a world around us that's unembodied, we just kind of like cut that off and that's like out of mind. They're very much in tune with that world uh, to a scary degree, right? But what's an interesting thing is without even having a conversation, when they see a human being that's filled with the Holy Spirit, they are much more in tuned and they can see that person. They can see the spirit like a city on a hill and they are drawn to it and they approach and they have these conversations of like, what is in you, right? They are completely opened up to that. And that's the reality that we're talking about. When we're walking in and completely surrendered and completely following Jesus and walking in this life that is completely given away, we are like salt. We are like a light and eyes are drawn and lives are drawn. Just like that example that Bo was sharing with us in Nepal. <clears throat> so to close, just a, couple, just a couple points of reflection that I think continue to start to kind of get our minds and our hearts kind of wrapped around this concept and just a way that we can kind of sit with the Spirit and reflect uh, on these aspects that we've been talking about this morning. So a couple questions to consider. Are you aware of our God-saturated world? Do you know your security? Do you know your identity? What competes with your attention? When it comes to giving yourself to him, is your heart holy is? Do you trust him? Because the natural outflow of these first two points is going to be to give your life away. It's going to be to bring life. It's going to be to love and to give for the good of another. And how will this look? To be honest, I don't know. I think part of it is going to be you asking yourself, well, what's my context, right? Where am I at? 
what are the needs that are around me? That's start there. That's an, e- that's an easy place to start. And as we close, we're reminded of as much as Jesus' life and Peter's life here in John chapter 18 is in stark contrast with one another, so too is the kingdom in stark contrast with the kingdom of the world. So too should our lives be in stark contrast to the world around us, right? A light in darkness, a city alight in the darkness up on a hill. Sure, it draws, but it's also very much in stark contrast to the darkness that's around it. You know, I was thinking about, um, and I didn't have this in my teaching notes, but I was just thinking about uh, that passage um, in, the New, in the New Testament that says, uh, so each of you, um, in different, different um, translations, describe it in different ways, but it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God or submit yourselves to God, and in due time, he'll lift you up. So it's this, it's this completely... Um, surrendered life. And it's like all those details, all those things that we um, aim to protect ourselves over or promote ourselves over. It's like, give those things to God. Like he'll take care of those things. Put your life in his hands and he'll do it when he's supposed to. Just a complete trust, a complete surrender. And I was like, Peter, Peter said that. That's in, that's in uh, First Peter, I believe. So the same guy that we're reading here, he's gotten to the point when he's writing to the early church and he's like, oh. you know, it's like if if, if he could be like sitting there with us or going through, and we pull out like John, cha- or John chapter 18, and then, and then contrast that with his letter in First and Second Peter, it's, like, it's a completely different dude, a completely different dude. So I was just thinking about that this morning. I was like, that was Peter who said that. That's, a, that's, that's, the, that's the new life and the new reality of the kingdom of Jesus. So uh, with that, let's, let's close in prayer, and then the worship team can come up. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are our model, that in your wisdom, you you gave yourself, you sent yourself. You said, hey, you want to know what I'm like? I'm going to come give myself. You want to know what the new, truer reality is that is available to you? The new abundance of life, one that's when that's parked in the infinite, in the eternal, yeah, everyone around you is operating in scarcity and in fear, but guess what? I'm putting on offer to you a life of abundance, a life that does not end. In the scriptures, you say to us, what's the worst thing that could happen? You die, right? What's the worst thing that others can do? What's the worst thing that another can do to you? Take your life? Oh, like, don't, like, don't be afraid of that, right? Your life should be completely completely parked and um, thinking of the one who holds your eternity in his hands, right? That's who you live before. And that is the life that you offer us into, Jesus. And thank you that you not only spoke it, but you lived it. And you not only spoke it and lived it and gave it to us as a model, but your word says at the end of Matthew that you have not left us alone. You have not left us alone to like try to figure it out and do it on our own or 
um, like, hey, let's see if we can really try to like do our best emulating you, you say, oh no, I'll be with you to the end of the age. In my spirit, the helper, the one who raised me in power, like he's going to be parked inside of you, right? He's going to be empowering you and fulfilling you and sustaining you and driving you forward and putting more life and power um, to your efforts than you could ever do on your own. So we thank you for that, Jesus. We ask that you would open our eyes. You're constantly saying, hey, for those who have eyes, let them see. Hey, for those who have ears, let them hear. So we ask that you would tune in our senses to your God-saturated world, your kingdom, and that our response would be as we see your goodness and your greatness and as we see our security in you, we would be like, Lord, look no further. Here's my life. Right here, it's me that steps up onto the altar. And as we sit in that truth, as we sit in that reality, as we find you trustworthy, we turn it and we look out and we go, okay, what are you up to? Right? Where can I give my life away? And you promised us, Jesus, that it's the better way to live. Right? You said it is way better to give than to receive. That is what we are created for. Our lives have your stamp, your image, your likeness is on us. It's in us. And you have knit us in the same way that we, operating in your likeness, we are to give ourselves away. We are to give our lives away. So would you fill us with your flame? Would it not be a small flame? Would you make us fully a flame, Lord, for your purposes and for your glory?